Today, we're talking to Brandon, CTO of Napster, about how the company is disrupting the music industry yet again, this time through Web3 Technologies. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Joel, how are you, sir? Fantastic. I love your microphone. Do you do a lot of podcasting? I don't. I've done a lot of like presentation type things and, uh, you know, some videos and whatnot, some streaming here and there. But I think you're on the same route. This is SM7B, right? SM7 is the only way to go, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> When you messaged me on LinkedIn, it was the funniest message I've received like the whole the whole week. And you had said, I'm the CTO of Napster. Yes, we still exist. And I just started <laughs> laughing. I screenshotted it. I texted it to my producer and my wife. Yep. And I was like, this is hilarious. So do you get that a lot? I get that a lot. We all get that a lot. You know, it's it's either if you're under 35, the question is, what's Napster? If you're over 35, it's, uh, oh, Napster. I remember Napster, you know, and, and a lot of good memories. Right? I mean, it's an iconic brand. But a lot of them are like, I didn't know you guys were still around. You know, I didn't know you guys were still streaming. And we're really going to work hard to change that. Yeah, as far as media goes, like entering the public media, Napster was one of the first tech brands to really do that in my lifetime. That's right. That's right. I mean, it was the original disruptor. Um, I mean, I've got, I've been around long enough to remember it. I was a user of it back in the day, and I really dug into the history of it to kind of understand it um, a bit. So, I mean, yeah, it started in 1999. It was, you know, everybody knows the name Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, and they kind of created this thing to basically a peer-to-peer file sharing service. Primarily, it was used, originally for me, it was used for bootleg copies. You know, you, you, you couldn't go and buy like concerts of like Pearl Jam that performed in Memphis in 97, which was a great concert. You know, there's a lot of these things that, you know, you just couldn't get at a CD store at Tower Records or whatever. So MP3s, which was a very new thing at the time, and some of them were taken from literally cassette tape recordings. And so they were not high quality. They were not great, but they were adequate for the time. And that eventually expanded to commercial, you know, which, you know, it was exacerbated by the ability to rip and burn CDs. And so obviously that, the history of that is pretty well known, I think, for Napster, if you do know Napster's history. And if not, it's, uh, we got into a lot of trouble around the RAA and um, copyright infringement. But it's important to note that Napster really ushered in that MP3 era <clears throat> to start to replace physical recordings as the media of choice for people to listen to music. And then two years and two lawsuits after Napster was founded, or a couple of lawsuits after it was founded, Napster 1.0 was essentially shut down. The company went bankrupt. And again, the important footnote there is that while they lost the legal battle, the actual war, the transformational war that occurred was won because consumers had to say, now, we don't want to just go buy an entire CD for one or two songs that we enjoy. We want to buy that. We want on a track selection. We want a little more a la carte. We want it instantly. We don't want to have to wait for this to appear. We want to be able to get it right away. And then in the aftermath of that, there was a company called uh, Roxio that purchased the brand and re, you know they there were all the remaining assets this was for like about 5 million dollars or something ridiculously cheap in in 2001 they later sold it you know to best buy in 2008 for 120 20 million i think is what the time uh, but at that time roxio had a product called press play oh yeah which is more like music purchasing you know you could just go online and, and purchase those songs you know so they tried to take the legit form of that at the same time, while this is going on, there's a company called Rhapsody that's that's been built, and they're kind of running in parallel. And they had this engine called Aladdin that they uh, actually I think they purchased from ListenTo.com and, and uh, TuneTo.com, and they were the actual first streaming service around 2001. And this all converges right around 2011 
when Rhapsody bought Napster. And then a few years later, like 2016, something like that, they basically phased out the Rhapsody name and became just Napster. Now, it's important to note that the parent company of Napster is Rhapsody International. Um, you'll see some Rhapsody stuff here and there, but Napster is essentially the brand of the product. And now in 2020, in a couple of years ago, Melody VR stepped in and they purchased uh, Napster. They were trying to interject some virtual reality, some 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 video. They added video to the platform. Um, they were trying to bring you know virtual concerts, things like that, to to the mix. And then 2022, you know, COVID took a hit. You know, everybody took a hit on on that. But 2022, Algorand and Hivemind, um, Algorand being a layer one Web three blockchain, purchased uh, Napster. And so now I was hired on as an Algorand employee. And one of my first tasks was we need you to kind of come in and build this bridge to Web 2 and Web 3. We're trying to reinvigorate that that renegade disruptor moniker of the iconic brand of Napster, and Web 3 was the way we wanted to do that. So I was put in and then eventually moved, moved my way into the CTO, the interim CTO position, and so um, that brings us to today. Sorry, the little long-winded uh, history, but it's a long story. I mean, it's 20 years yeah. now. Yeah, it's got it's moved around a lot, and it's in pop culture and everything. Yeah, like last month, I was watching uh, the Italian Job. Okay, and and you know the large part of that is the the guy that is like one of the thieves was the guy that created Napster, and it was stolen from him or something like that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. It's also mentioned in the Social Network. Like I have daughters, and yeah, they're all under you know they're all younger, and they hadn't heard of it. And they you know, said, "Oh, Dad's working for some company called Napster." They don't know what it is. And like I, they watched the Social Network, uh, which was really the story of Facebook, and I think Sean Parker's in that. Uh, T- Justin Timberlake plays him, and that scene became very popular on TikTok. And they're like, they mentioned it on TikTok. Oh my gosh, you're famous. I'm like, not really, but you know, I like I, I had nothing to do with all that. I'm just kind of here now. Uh, so it's just yeah, kind of funny how that how that comes around in pop culture from time to time. So when I found out we had a date booked to talk, I was like, oh, I got to do my research. So I went and signed up for a Napster account. Great. So thank you for making it easy to, to sign up quickly and all of that. Uh, and then my first thought was, this is a blue Spotify. <laughs> the interface is blue, right? And I was like, this is Spotify. But it was like slightly different. And I didn't dig deep enough into it because I'm not a power user of Spotify. So I wouldn't be able to like compare the granular features. So right. I figured I'd just ask, you know, Brandon, what what's the big differences between Spotify and Pandora? That's a great question. Yeah. First thing you know, it's important to know the missions are different. You know, um, Spotify is look, you can go and watch the um, I think it's called the playlist on Netflix, which talks about their history. It's very interesting. I watched it myself. But we're really about bringing the artists and fans together, and so that that artist focus and the fan focus, you know, is really what we're uh, what we're, we're zeroing in on. This isn't to take anything away from you know Spotify or YouTube Music or iTunes, but we're very invested in that particular piece. And Spotify, iTunes, YouTube Music, they're not really my north stars in terms of like what I look at from a like what's going to be the Napster of the future. I, I don't want to be strictly beholden to just playing piggyback. First of all, we don't have the resources to match those. Secondly, what the streaming platforms, all of them do, including us, is they create a very isolated experience. 
in Spotify, you can go in and you can have a friend and you can see what they're listening to and possibly even listen along. But there's no real room for collaboration. Like, hey, you know, you, I'll share a playlist with you, but let's make one together. Let's have a jukebox party at the house. We bring some fans and fr- friends over. We can sit around and add music to it individually from our own phones and just create, uh, you know, our, uh, a working group playlist, things like that. So we want to explore that more, not only from the user experience side, but also from the artist experience side. One of the things with the reports that you may have seen out there is that um, how much um, royalties are actually given back to the artists in, in the forms of their royalty payments. You know, it's, Napster's been, you know, noted as higher. Now, I, I will caveat to say that that's based on a very limited test set or sample set of, of data. It's not always going to be the case because each contract is very different per the labels, per the artist. It's just not quite something you can zero in and say Napster pays their artists more than anybody else. But, you know, where we're looking at with the Web3 aspect where we're bringing in, you know, what Algorand is trying to do is to kind of introduce, uh, you know, open up multiple segments that fulfill a largely untapped market. And this is really three areas, the community building, which I talked about, uh, because, look, we can start to build organic communities around the genres that you're interested in, the subgenres, the, the artists themselves, the, the music festivals that you attend. You know, we can start to gather this information and give a more curated experience around that. The second is going to be music distribution via NFTs, which I can talk about in a bit. And the third would be the royalty reporting, which is a big problem in the industry that every every one of the DSPs and and um, you know anybody who does music distribution shares. But from a user experience side, coming back to your question, it's just a blue Spotify. It's a fair point. You know, we did we had to make a, this major relaunch, uh, what we called N twenty one, which was uh, launched uh, earlier this year, and a lot of that was a couple years of culminating um, updates to the user experience and the platform itself, the back end, the front end, all of that. We did, a, you know, almost a complete revamp. It looks great. It looks yeah. great, by the way. Yeah. Thanks. And it's, uh, but yeah, once we launched it, it's like we were still trying to play piggyback. So we can't keep looking at that. Look, we want the behavior to be familiar. We don't want it to be something like, I've got to learn an entirely new thing of like, where do I get to my playlist? And they call it a library and they, we're calling it my music. And, you know, all these differences just confuse people Confuse people because they have a much larger audience than we do. And we don't want to make it difficult for them if they want to choose to use our platform. So hopefully that that answers your question, at least in a bit of a roundabout way, because it's, you know, it's, it's not that we looked at it and go, hmm, let's just do this, let's just do that. It kind of like user experience and behavior patterns all seem to kind of align. When I get to my playlist as quickly as possible, I want to search and find music based on, you know, metadata that 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 is uh, common and easy to categorize and find information on, and then cre- curate my own list of that and mark my favorites, and then just go back and listen to it at, at will. Now you keep mentioning the name of the parent company. Is that also a cryptocurrency? It is. So Algorand um, is uh, it's a layer one blockchain. So their cryptocurrency is called the Algo. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's a it's a pure proof of stake. Um, you know, it's it, it was actually founded by a Turing Award winner. Um, you know, which is basically the Nobel Prize in computers, um, Sylvia McCauley. Back in uh, 2017, before the Ethereum merged and they, they moved to a, a pure, uh, proof of stake type of model, we were already doing that. And it's super fast. Transactions are super fast. Fees are super low, very scalable, highly secure, never been forked, never been hacked. And so, you know, that that's when I hired on. Those were the things I were I was looking for from a tech company to say, well, I don't just want to join any cryptocurrency company. I'd like to join one that's that is actually going to be legitimate. Yeah, now I hold some of that. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. I I hold cryptocurrency not as investment, really. Like I don't think about it as an 
it doesn't come up in my investment portfolio conversations. Sure. The way I look at it as is I own things based off of the utility of of the coin. Super right? smart. So Filecoin, love Filecoin. Yeah. Um, you know, the interplanetary file system just sounds yep. cool. Obviously, yeah. that's the direction we're headed. Will it be worth something? I don't really know. I don't care, but I want to own some of it. You know, I only do it with the amount of money I'm willing to completely lose. So I got some, I keep some on my exchange. I keep some in like a, a I think it's like a treasure or something like that, some type yep. of physical yep. wallet. Cold store wallet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so just to kind of understand, you know, what, what the kids these days, <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's still so relatively new. I mean, you know, Bitcoin's been around for quite a number of years now, going almost, almost getting close to a decade, I think. And even the adoption of that in terms of like business usage of it, you know, which is really what Algorand focuses on. Like, it's not just like, hey, go buy our token and let's, you know, let's all make billions of dollars together. This is not a FOMO catch up to the Bitcoin. I should have bought it when it was a dollar uh, type of thing. This is utilizing the tech to actually solve problems and not trying to find problems or use the tech as a hammer to where everything becomes a nail. But it's really, you know, where can we apply practical usage of a blockchain technology, which is really just a distributed database in the cloud. IPFS is just takes that to a, you know, an nth degree in terms of now storing files rather than just little blocks of small data. And so I think you know, in terms of like a crawl, walk, run, we're at the drool phase, especially when we're talking about NFTs, you know, which are really, really early and a lot of misunderstandings about like what NFTs are and what they're actually used for, supposed to be used for. People confuse them like, well, they're just JPEGs. Like, why do, why do I care about owning a JPEG? I don't want to pay $1,000 for a JPEG to sit in a wallet on my phone that I could just download and, and have it for free. There's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding around that. And it's just, you have the Web3 technical te- people who are actually talking about it. And then you have the marketing and, you know, business to speak people who are trying to synthesize that. And the translation gets lost, wildly lost along the way. Yeah. From what I understand, it's like, I don't want a, a picture of a title. I want what comes with the title. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't really understand it deeply. So is that what it is? Like, this is the graphical representation of the ownership. The NFT is the actual you want to think of it like a certificate of authenticity, meaning you own this image. I can't speak to the utility of that. People will infer value based on it, but from from a you know from a long standing or from a future looking forward looking standpoint, that's not where it's going to stop. I mean, we're looking at using music NFTs. You know, this is a very emerging market right now. Like, how do we you know take take the JPEGs out of the equation and let's put a a music file behind that? And what can we do with that? How can we use that now as a part of a streaming platform to say, okay, you we will mint the NFTs for this song, and anyone who has ownership of this song can now stream it. And every time you stream it, part of a smart a smart contract reads that and then writes that out to the chain as a you streamed this song for five seconds on this date. At at this time, and then that becomes part of the royalties payout, which right now is super problematic. But I'm sorry, coming back to the actual blockchain, you know, like holding versus trading versus you know the commodities of it. I think what people need to understand is like blockchains only make money when blockchain is being used, and so you're right to invest in things with utility. You're, it's the smartest way to do it. You want to look at the long-standing efficacy of. Is this going to, who's using it? Why are they using it? What are they using it for? And then what does that entail in terms of like a future prospect? And that's how you should make your decisions based off that. 
I don't really personally focus on that commodity side of it, the commercial side of it, like trading, buying, selling, holding. It's more about utilizing the tech in a way that's going to solve actual problems because it is a very advanced, you know, we, we're going from a very centralized uh, type of architecture to a decentralized, which is different than a distributed architecture. And as we move to decentralized and this now becomes puts ownership back into people's hands, privacy is a huge issue right now. Any social media out there, you're going to be concerned about like, well, what data am I putting out there and how do I get it back? How do I, how do I take it with me? Web3, which is the third evolution of the web from a read only, you were just reading web pages to read, write. You're now able to update and edit things and interact with data to read, write and own, which is web three. You can now take your identity with you wherever you go. I would like for you to be able to log into Napster. Your identity is there. And if you decide to leave Napster and go to another place, you can take it with you. We don't keep it. We don't own that. Um, you can take it with you. All your preferences, your playlists, what you like, what you don't like, all of that goes with you to the next streaming service and so on and so forth. And coming back around to the music NFTs, that is something that we can, you know, we've, we've looked at using IPFS. Like, can we put the music out there? The legalities are just too difficult because now we're back to being a piracy company. And obviously we don't, we don't want to go back to that. <laughs> that didn't yeah. the first time. We're not going to go Nostalgia back. Nostalgia play. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a real throwback and uh, dangerous, dangerous territories. But you know, it's, it's worth looking at the tech and that's, that's my point. Yeah. Have you guys considered, or are you in the process of building infrastructure for it to solve this royalties problem? We have. So it's important to note the background of what this royalty, I mean, how royalties work now. And look, I'm not an industry insider. I haven't been in the music industry for, you know, number, number of years, but I, you know, I was able to glean a lot of this and essentially how it works is if you're the artist and I'm the streaming provider, you know, you give me your music and then I tell you how many people streamed your music and when and how I give you a report on that. And then I tell you how much I owe you. So it is not even a real like, uh, it's very, it's a very trust centric model. Like you have to really trust the data that I'm giving you is accurate. And then the money that sits on top of it accurately reflects the data. That's also very slow and sluggish. It takes a number of months to crunch the data, process the numbers, run the stuff out, get this to you. Then there's a back and forth of like, well, hang on a minute. You know, is this right? Is this wrong? You're doing a little, it's a negotiation. And then there's the actual payment, which also takes a little bit of time to get those out. This is a huge problem that everybody faces. iTunes, Spotify, it's, it's an industry problem. And by utilizing the chain now, what we can do is we can write that out. It is, a, again, it's a, it's a distributed database. It's near real time. So you can see that information that's out there. It's still private and secure. We would never put individual users out there. It's just a, this, a, a user with this abstract ID streamed this song for this long on this date. And that's now readable from you know, the other side, from the labels or the artists themselves. So you don't have to trust us because the blockchain doesn't lie. We can't artificially change things. It has to be by consensus. So as we're writing out there, it's being confirmed by multiple systems. They can see all of this and they're like, I trust that this data is accurate now. Also on the tail end of that is the payments because there is a token assumedly behind that. And this is very long, long-term future. Um, it could be to where we're instantly paying as a result of that. It doesn't need to be this one lump sum check that we're sending out uh, you know, to make payments to it. So it would be fractions of a cent for each stream, but that will accumulate over time. And then you would have basically the data would be accurate and trustable. And then the, the financial aspect of it would be dealt with as well. That's pretty interesting. And so... Do you think that there's an incentive for Spotify's and Pandora's to move to this? Is there an incentive on the publisher's end? 
Yeah, I, I, we're not the we're not uh, the only ones who have tried to tackle this. I mean, this is, you know, I don't know what they're doing specifically uh, on there, but you know, what we'd like to, I'd like to move us to is to be the platform for that. Like Spotify can link to our NFTs and play the music from our content streaming platform through them. Still take their amount of money, we get a small cut of that, um, and it's again recordable on chain. You know, that's a long term vision and did not definitely not on any roadmaps anywhere that I would publish. But, you know, th- these are kind of like visionary type things that I'm looking at, like, how do I solve this for the industry, not just for us? And it helps Napster, helps the industry, helps artists. Well, I was just talking, I think, a week or two ago with the guy who's credited as like the father of SSL. Okay. Uh, and he was over at, uh, obviously it was a team and it was a lot of people and it was a whole thing, but he had assumed a leadership position after having some success in technology at Netscape and they were trying to solve this problem, the industry problem of this data and the commerce advancing. And so SSL was a proposed solution and then he took it from idea to completion and he realized I think he said like three quarters of the way through, he realized that the only way that this thing was actually going to happen was if they went and they made it a standard and that they like no one specifically owned it. And there was some tech organization, I forget the name of it, but, and he's like, that would be the only way we could make it work. So they got together with Microsoft and some of the other big companies and they're like, would you adopt the standard if we make it an open thing? And then everyone said, yep. And then that's SSL. And so that might be a valid way to do it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of these emerging techs become mainstay because of that, because it becomes, you know, either some type of ISO standard or it becomes, you know, just an adopted standard. You know, it's like, well, this this works. You know, we're now expanding, you know, uh, APIs are done through OAuth, you know, almost invariably. You know, we've got gRPC and, you know, we've got, you know, all these other ones. But those become, you know, technical standards in and of themselves because it's ubiquitous wherever you go. OAuth is OAuth. You know, whether you choose to use it or not is a different story. But when you do, you know how it works. You understand the underlying mechanics of it. And this, I think this follows the same route. SSL, TLS, you know, all of that came about as a result of we have a serious problem in, in the, in, you know, it, that is absolutely omnipresent in terms of how, like, how do we secure web pages, you know, that are there, you know, we're interacting with them now. And how do we make sure that that data transmits from receiver to sender unhindered? Same with how music is being done. How do we transfer that music, stream that music to somebody else? And we know that that's being recorded correctly because we have a lot of fraud that's out there too. We have a lot of these bots that come in and create artificial plays and strum up a lot of uh, playlists. And like, we're paying for things that actually people aren't really using. They're just bots. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I I would love to see, I mean, there's a lot of standards I wish were in place in multiple markets, you know, because I come from legal tech and I come from Ben tech and like the standards are, they're frayed everywhere. Yeah. I had a podcast pop up on my, like you might want to listen to or new, new tech podcast. And I was like, oh, cool. Someone's doing another technology podcast. Like, I, I love these things. And so I go subscribe to it. And they were like, you know, two episodes deep and they had like 975 star reviews. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Mm. I was like, I've been operating this for 600 episodes. I know what the natural review, if you don't like bother people for, and then I know what you can get if you do bother people for it. And I was like, they just bought the reviews. Yeah, it's a it's a real problem that we have to face. You know, I don't know how the others are dealing with it. I mean, we we talk to a lot of the same providers for fraud prevention. Um, and they say, oh, we, we've done this for Rhapsody or for um, for Pandora. We've done this for, you know, and, you know, we look at, you know, how it's going to be done. Can we do it on the edge? Can we do it after the fact as a part of a reporting aspect? You know, my preference is I want it done real time as everywhere as possible. 
but it's kind of wacky and you you can't really like attribute it to like well who's doing it like the labels wouldn't do this and the artists really they goes through the labels so how is this being done like where we can't really attribute causality to it just we know that it's happening yeah so it's 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 strange but i think that is a definitely gamification of the system for sure so what was the actual moment that you got this offer to work with Napster? I mean, that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, it was right away, actually. So I was, when I was hired on an Algorand, it was kind of a, we're going to figure it out as we go. Like they knew they wanted me to become on board. They, you know, they, they had a lot going on at the time. Um, there was a, mo- there was a massive list <clears throat> of projects available to, to work on. We were looking at creating, you know, uh, coins for tourism within specific countries, you know, uh, so that you come in on a cruise ship and you could use a cryptocurrency to <clears throat> buy things at the, you know, different ports of call and, and stores and whatnot without having to do fiat transfers and go buy the local currency, things like that. We were looking at things like that. We were looking at doing, using the blockchain to provide what was called a proof of truth. So there was a consensus-based truth model because, you know, we were in a political climate at the time that, you know, fake news, false news, artificially inflated, sensationalized headlines were, you know, creating a lot of different things in the, in the, in the media industry. And they wanted to, well, can we shape this to give us just facts and give us, you know, give us more information using blockchain technology and a consensus method. And then there were, then there was Napster. So when I got hired on, um, you know, uh, I really didn't know what I was going to do day one. Had no idea. You know, I knew I was going to be helping people build bridges to Web3. Um, and then one of the names that came up was Napster. I was like, well, that's a blast from the past. Um, tell me more about this. What's, what, what, what do we need to do here? And they said, well, we just acquired them. And, you know, we're really, you know, their name is just well known as the original disruptor in the, in the industry. Web3 is, an, is a potentially disruptive technology. Let's see if we can make this happen. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. Are you still exploring or do you know the disruptive thing that you're going to be doing? We have, so I tell you what, we went through four months of ideation, just just kicking over the possibilities, the art of the possible, what we could do. Um, we had a lot of industry people that had been in this for years. We, we've got people that work at NAFSA that have been here since the Roxio days 20 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. they're still, they know, they know where the bodies are buried and they know the mistakes that have been made in the past. So learning from them has been, you know, super helpful. And we have people that are serious Web3 media type folks too. It's like, what about this? How do we deal with that? How do we, you know, what can we offer in terms of like collectibles? Like, can we make album art something that's collectible for people and that people can maintain collections? Because people like to have that type of interactivity and, and that involvement. And when you talk about fans, they're short for fanatics for a reason. They really are invested in the artist. And when we talked about NFTs, music NFTs are, you know, you, you know, you, it, you'd have a hard time naming five, you know, digital artists that do NFTs, but you could probably name five musical artists who, yeah. who could do NFTs. And some of them do. Snoop Dogg's doing NFTs, you know, T-Pain's doing NFTs. I mean, the, nothing, nothing new under the sun right now, but they're all just very experimental. So we're like, well, what can we, how can we shape this into something that's going to be a, a realistic thing? And, and we want to make it as it's seamless as possible for users because look, no one's going to come in here and understanding crypto. No one's going to come in here understanding blockchain, this web three, that like, what does it look like for me as a, just a general, I just want to listen to music, man. I don't need to be bothered with all this other stuff. I want to get in and play my music. And so we're looking at things like, you know, maybe we can do NFT tickets, you know, to, to the, to the events. You go and buy your tickets directly through the app, show your phone, just like you do. If you're boarding a plane, scan the barcode, you're in. 
you know. So we're we're trying to reach out beyond just digital streaming, music streaming, but kind of like create experiences for for fans. We've got um, some explorations we're doing into the metaverse too. Is this something we want to be a part of? You know, is this something that we can maybe you know bring some disruption to as well? Is this a disruptive technology at all? So. I think we've zoned in on, we started out with just all these just whiteboarded brainstorming type of ideas and we've shaped them down to, we we try to be analytical about what has the most impact for the artist and what has the most impact for the user and what has the most impact for us and what has, you know, what's the level of effort that's going to be needed in this, et cetera, et cetera. And now I think we've got that down to a, a pretty, pretty good comprehensive list, at least for our next year. I, I don't like looking beyond like three to six months because Things are going to change, and it's just planning that out for that far. Just you know, you're you're just going to go back to the drawing board anyway. So I don't know if I'm answering your question on that. I mean, that's yeah. a, well, you're saying words, and they sound good, and that's the purpose of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's legible, good. Now, when for me, one of the things I've constantly reminding myself of is that when I think something is interesting, or I like something, or I don't like something. That's really only good for people who are like really similar to me. So I try not to come up with too many thoughts about, for example, you mentioned like Twitch or video streaming game Mm -hmm. watching earlier. When I saw Twitch come out, I wouldn't have invested any money into them. (laughs) I completely dismissed it. I was like, I grew up playing video games. Like if the whole point is like yelling at the person and pushing them until you get the controller and it's your turn again, you know, uh, I was, I was polite, but that definitely happens as kids. And in the idea that I would spend my free time to sit down and watch someone else play a game is was like so far beyond my realm of understanding i was like no and then i look at it and they have like billions of hours of views or users and the esports industry is like massive now okay i I get a competition but these people are like casually going about their day playing these games talking about different things and they just have tens of thousands of people watching them do this and i was like man that is super interesting i i think I would be interested in something like that if it was like, I like music a lot. If it was like, you know, Taylor Swift sitting down to write a song, I'd be like, oh, this is kind of cool. Yeah. Like, I, I'd watch, I watched her Netflix uh, special or whatever. And I was like, you know, you have to respect her. She just owned the top, I can't name 10 of her songs, by the way, but she owned the, the top 10 billboard. Did you hear about that? Yeah, yeah, yep. Dude, that's insane. <laughs> Yeah, and it and it changes. It changes so quickly, and you're right. And a lot of them are uh, a lot of the artists are that you know. Really, when you ask them what they want, you know, obviously Taylor Swift doesn't need any more money. She doesn't need any more fame. You know, she's probably that's probably not her guiding thing. That a lot of them are about fan interactions, about about how they deal with fans. Like something that Taylor Swift does is she has a close circle of friends that she brings over, and they do. I think they do baking parties at her house or something like that. You know, nice. I, I'm not the biggest Taylor Swift fan in the world, so don't don't quote me on that. I just. I know that that is uh, that is a that is a driver for them is to have that kind of that that bridge between the the fan and the art that their their own fans because that's how they grow really what they want is distribution they want their music to be heard and to do that you build these organic communities and the organic communities will uh, extend their reach and to your point about Twitch same thing you know the, you look at them like they're not the best gamers in the world these are not like pro gamers and things like that but what they have is a community that is built around them so you watch their chat if you can keep up with that crazy scrolling that some of them have going on 
but they have a community around them. A lot of them jump on the Discord in between the streams that happen, you know, and that they're, they're, they're all kind of centered around this, this subject matter that they all care deeply about. And that's the organic communities. And I think with music, you can definitely recreate that magic. And that's, as I alluded to earlier, that's one of the things that's missing. Are you guys doing like original content or just communities? You mean like uh, what's being produced? Yeah. You- like, do you guys do your own shows? Like, you know, Spotify bought Joe Rogan, but Spotify also makes some of its own show. Not, they didn't buy it. They did whatever their deal was with them. But we don't. Yeah. No. Right now it's, it's strictly music. Um, we've, you know, we've dabbled with the idea of podcasts. You know, do we want to offer podcasts? We would rather, I mean, I, I think the, the, the general consensus is we would rather integrate with something that already has that. That way, when you're maintaining your list of favorites and things like that, you're not having to go to four different platforms to, you know, to, to listen to your, like, I have my favorite uh, on Spotify because that's where I go to listen to my, my podcast. If I had to go somewhere else and then like, okay, how do I get this over there? And how do I get that? You know, who, who's going to, am I going to get notified by three different apps that the same guy, you know, Joel just published a new video or, or, or a podcast, you know, we want to try to make it again. It's got to be about the user experience. Like, what are we? What are we adding? Are we just trying to keep up with the Joneses? Are we just leapfrogging functionality? That's really not a business model for us. Yeah, you're a Marine. I am. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about that. What did you do in the Marines? I was a musician, actually. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I was. I'm. I was born and raised in a small town, uh, Evansville, Indiana. Uh, middle school, high school. I had a, a friend whose whose mom was a CIO at the time, um, and they ha- they were they had a home computer, and that was a super rare thing. Small town Indiana having a home computer. This is like the eighties, and they became fascinated by it. Not only like what it did, but what it could do. You know, I just fell in love immediately. It was just mind blowing at the time. And I asked my parents for a computer while everybody else wanted. TVs or Air Jordans or Walkmans, you know, I'm asking for a computer. They kind of raised an eyebrow and they thought, I guess it might keep him out of trouble for at least a little while. He'll probably lose interest and throw it in the trash. So they got me, I remember waking up vividly to uh, still see the image in my head today, seeing a, a computer desk, an old Oak, you know, 80s computer desk with an Atari 800 XL hooked up to an old black and white television set with a cassette tape hard drive, f- floppy drive. Well, I don't know if you'd call it a hard drive or floppy drive. It's a, a disk drive. And a big ribbon over the top of it, you know. So I played with that all all the time. I mean, I was just tinkering and I'd, I'd get magazines. I'd go to user group meetings and, you know, all this stuff. And I was really, like, inter- interested in it. And this is middle school, high school. And then after high school, I joined the Marines. And that's where I was stationed in Hawaii, which, I, as you can imagine, was pretty rough uh, to be put in Hawaii. It's like, all right, I, I guess. Uh, but I was, I was as a musician. And while I was there, I bought a Packard Bell in the military, we had these things on base called PXs, post exchanges. You, you said you're a military brat, right? So you know that. Yeah. 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 So it's like the Walmart on base, whatever. And you got the store credit. My One of my roommates got a TV set. One of them got a stereo. I got a computer, old 486, this Packard Bell. And that, I started to tinker with BBSs, configured my own windsock to get on the internet, which was very new at the time. There was really nothing there on the internet. I remember using MIRC for the first time. Chatting with somebody in real time around the world was just, again, another mind-blowing experience. It's just been one of those kind of eureka moments after another. And so, yeah, I went in, anyway, I was, went in as a musician. And when I got out, uh, really the only thing I was qualified to be was a security guard. So that's what I did. You know, I, was a, uh, I was a security guard at a casino, and they happened to be rolling out a new piece of software called Windows 95. I'm like, hey, I know Windows. I'm like, oh, cool. You want to come in and we'll do a little bit of work for us? I did. And they eventually offered me a networking operator job where they were replacing these old AS400 mainframes with Windows 95. 
a big jump for the time. I sat in the bottom of this casino boat with a microwave link back to land, to, to the internet, you know, and this was, you know, late, late 90s, uh, teaching myself HTML and Perl. Because I, there was nothing, I literally, all I did was fix printers, you know, most of the time. So it was, it was the graveyard shift. So I was there from like 11 p.m. until like 7 or 8 in the morning. So I had nothing really better to do. So I sat there and learned HTML and Perl, taught myself how to do web design, graphic design, et cetera, became a webmaster, where I eventually went to work for Caterpillar, which is, you know, Fortune 50 company. I was the webmaster, which you're everything. You're the graphics guy, the networking guy, you're the programmer, you're, you do it all. And then things started to become more specialized. This was around Y2K. And I'm like, I don't really want to pick one of my favorite children, you know, of the, the tools that I built in my belt. So I went into more project management. That took me into legal tech. You know, I went to work for a law firm. Uh, then I went to work for a legal tech startup um, out in Silicon Valley called Intap and um, then Bentech and then Napster, or Algorand Napster. Nice. And then what would you credit your advancements between your roles? Was it relationships? Was it recruiters? How did you get a leg up? I think it's the constant curiosity and self, you know, the autodidactic nature of, I've never set foot in a computer class. You know, I don't have a computer science degree, but I went from developer to CTO, I think just off of just being naturally curious about things and wanting to understand. It's, a, it's an engineering mindset. You know, I, I don't think you become an engineer. I think you just naturally are an engineer and it's what you do with it is really what matters. So I had that engineering mindset. I like to understand how things work. Can I break this and put it back together again? I do this stuff with, you know, just outside of technology too. And a lot of people are like that. And I think that credit is constantly keeping up with it. But that's what drew me to it in the first place because it changes so much. This is not a static, you're not a factory line worker stamping the same piece of metal as it walks across the, um, you know, the conveyor belt. You know, you're always having to learn, like learn what's coming out when cloud came about. Like I was all about that. I was just invested in this. Like, this is amazing. Nobody really knew what it was. It's kind of like Web3 now. It was just kind of this ubiquitous term. What is cloud? Where is the cloud? How does the cloud work? But that's the part of being a technologist is that you have to keep up with it um, in order to be good at it. But you should have a natural curiosity and love of that in order to, and it just kind of, it perpetuates. When people that are, I want you to think of a person right now who's like within your org, you don't have to name them, and they're doing well and they're showing signs and you're thinking, hey, maybe I should invest a little bit of my time into them and opportunity. What are those things that they're doing that are standing out to you? So it would be initiative. You know, they're, they're, uh, uh, I think the initiative is going to be the first part. They, you know, you've got some people are very much heads down, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And they, I don't want to devalue that type of work at all because they're usually very good at that too. And that's just, that's what the, how they like to operate. But if we're talking about advancement, you know, primarily to a leadership role or managerial role or something like that, and I don't believe in just because you do a good job, you're therefore qualified as a manager. It's two totally different skill sets in most cases. Um, but for that person that you're, that you just described in that scenario, I would say the initiative has to be there from a, like, I am going to take this on. Now, the, the initiative has a lot of different aspects to it. One of them is a nonconformist mindset. I'm not just going to follow the status quo. I'm not just going to follow the, the direction set. I'm going to challenge these con, the conventional thought that's out there. I personally love Socratic method, people who think like that, that are very questioning of things, and they, they ask questions in a way that kind of lead them to, to a truth. And that to me shows initiative too. When you are honestly seeking truth in terms of like solutioning or designing or architecture, like these are the things I look for from people like that, that are moving on that. And that's an initiative based aspect for me, not just getting the job done autonomously. Yes. 
that is one of the things that you know we track here, I guess. When I was first starting this, I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the recipe for a great leader? Yeah. So we did all these interviews and we asked them all these questions, all these leadership related things, and we started tracking them in a spreadsheet. And I was trying to figure out like what's that one formula? And I've after 600 episodes, I've come up with the following like one or two things. Number one is everybody has something that like anchors them, some sort of system or something that that they find very important that they do religiously and consistently. And then curiosity. That's the other thing. And then to become better, so like people would ask me all the time, like, well, how do I become a better tech leader? And I used to answer like, oh, you know, check out this book or check out this whatever resource material. And then I realized after living, so I'm interviewing these people, I'm building my business, I'm implementing their advice in my business. And then sometimes it goes great, sometimes it doesn't. What I end up finding out is that it's really, really difficult to constantly improve yourself, but that's the answer. So like, when people ask me now, how do I become a better leader? I'm like, well, how many days do you work out? Uh, what's your diet look like? <laughs> because if you're constantly improving yourself and improving those areas of discipline, then that makes you a better leader because leaders are typically people, they're people that you want to follow. You're right. That's why it's so interesting when people get up early. You notice how much respect someone gets if they wake up at 4.30 in the morning. But if you're in a different time zone, I mean, I'm <laughs> Yeah. It's it's not the act of it being 4.30 in the morning. It's the act of it's something difficult that you don't want to do and they can do it. And so having that realization, I was like, okay, cool. So all I have to do is do really difficult things for the rest of my life <laughs> and things go. will go well. Yeah. I love the parallels to that. And yeah, I, one of the, the one question I ask of everybody I interview for a leadership position, whether you're managing two people or 250 people, what is your definition of leadership? That's what I ask them. And I look for... The one thing that I've taken away is my definition of leadership. And mine actually comes from my time in the Marine Corps. I served under this three-star general at the time. His name was Charles Krulak, and he later became commandant of the Marine Corps. And he was a decorated Vietnam veteran, platoon commander, Purple Heart, Silver Star, you name it. His father was General Krulak, commandant of the Marine Corps during World War II. So we're talking about an organization that deals in life and death on every day. And then, you know, so leadership from this type of uh, individual is going to be well-received. He came to an event we were at, was just kind of we were all very low rate, you know, E1s, E2s, E3s. And it's like, let me ask you something. What's your definition of leadership? He walked around and asked her and we were like, oh, you know, um, it's, you know, setting the example and it's, you know, the constant improvement, those things. Like, he nodded and he's like, look, all of the answers you gave, none of them are wrong. You know, I'm not looking for a right answer here because let me tell you mine just to help you out. And he goes, it is just this simple. Serve those in your charge. So what we now know of is servant leadership. And that has stuck with me to this day. And I, I evolve that all the time. So when I ask someone coming in for a managerial role, what's your definition of leadership? They're not going to give me a wrong answer. You know, they're going to give me a, a true, honest answer. But what I look for in leaders are people who actually serve those. You've got to be there for them. You need to be reliable. People don't follow people because of titles. They follow people because they believe in what they're actually after. You know, this is a Simon Sinek type, type of- uh, I know, love that guy. Yeah, same, same. So that, that type of philosophy, like I could incorporate through. He did a study on the military too, which was super interesting. But you know, that I think has, there's got to be that inherent trust there that I trust this person to look after my best interests. And therefore I'm going to make sure that I earn that trust every day. And I've got to earn their trust every day. That's just important to me. And trust goes laterally too. You can't have a good C-suite without that that trust. You know, I have to rely on the CMO, the, the, the CFO, CIO, CFO, uh, COO, all of them. There's a trust that's inherent across the board and top to bottom as well. You've got 
the technical teams, the trust between the users, the trust between the C-suite, like I mentioned, board members, investors, and CTOs, I think, need to be highly attuned to that audience so that they can you know, talk about what they're doing and build that trust in a way that's not ivory tower or siloed or, you know. Um, so to me, that's imperative to a well-functioning, not only leadership body, but yeah. um, a leadership individual. It's like the opposite of FTX. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. man, yeah. So right, so right. For your leadership question, yeah. if you said, okay, what is leadership? And I were to answer you, influence. What would you think of that? I would want you to expand on that because influence can okay. mean you could influence in very negative ways yeah. uh, or you, in negative methods, not just the output. But like I would say, yeah, define that a little further, you know, say more. Yeah. Well, I was reading some leadership author a while back. He had said leadership is influence. And I was like, well, that's a good, that's interesting because like, let's rip that apart. And the way he had explained it was leaders have followers, Right. To be a leader, you have to have a follower. And to have right. a follower, you have to have influenced somebody. Right. Whether it's just your presence influencing them. So it's like not not the negative connection to the word, but like in a positive way. Like you have to have impacted them or influenced them in some way, shape, or form in order for them to know that you exist, in order for them to even follow you. And then it's like, okay, so like how do you do that better? Right. And you be really useful to people. You figure out, okay, here's these people. How can I be like incredibly useful for them? That's servant leadership to me. Yeah. That's servant, yeah. So I would say if that based on that definition, yeah, you, you would meet with what I was looking for. I mean, I think with influence, some of that can be, I don't want to say artificial, but indirect. You know, again, that goes back to the title thing, but you know, you're, you're a manager, you're, you're, you have manager after your name. Therefore, you have an air of authority around you because of that title. That's what, you, that's what you're paid for. So therefore, I have to follow you because it's part of the org chart. Um, I'm now your follower. So that's an indirect thing. But are you a leader at that point? I mean, if you can influence me directly, totally with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I specifically mean influence in the positive way. Like the influence I, that would cut. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. What other leadership advice do you have that's really great? I mean, there's some things, again, just because we've talked about the Marine Corps, you know, that influence that it's had on me. And look, I didn't serve very long in there, but you, you know, it's a, it's a life-changing event. And I, if I had, it was, you, you hate it when you're in, but you miss it ever since, you know, ever after you leave. I still take away a couple of things, um, both from that and then just things that I picked up along the way. And one thing is I, I also assume is a, what's called a rule of three. And it's, you know, you'll hear me, when you hear me talk, I talk in patterns of three. Like these are the three things that we're looking at. Like when I talk about the web three area, being primarily driven by these three areas. It's simpler for people to process. It's easier for me to remember. You know, it's it's more manageable. So three direct reports, if at all possible, that hardly ever works out because organizations are organizations. But two things that can work and have worked for me has been setting three objectives, you know, for either the quarter, the year, whatever the case may be with proper OKRs. They got to be measurable, actionable. They can't just be like, make things better, do things faster. You know, it's got to be something like actual tangible that you can look back on. But also focusing on three things at any given point. Like I am always thinking about three things that I'm going to do for the day. And those can change. You, you know, you're, you're not locked into those because priorities will change. But that way I've maintained that. That comes from the Marine Corps. They did this rule of three. They actually tried four, things started failing. So like, okay, that's it, three, three is all you get. And I think, again, with an organization based on a life and death scenario, that's something that I, I can take as influence. Something else that I, I've taken away just organically as a, as, a, as a tech leader is I look for my own leadership and my own peers to respect the tech. 
And that does not mean it needs to be revered, right? So I don't want to confuse respecting technology with revering it or holding it to some higher, it's not on some pedestal. But I have a, a common mistake that I see is to diminish the importance of technology in any vertical, but especially in tech companies. Because I think Mark Andreessen said it best, we're all basically tech companies at this point now. Yeah, you know, Everything's based on that. So I think when it comes to people who are outside of it or even inside of it, respecting the technology, just, just knowing that it's an important, vital piece. It's not just some simple thing or it's not some overly complicated thing. Like just treat it for what it is. It's just essential to the operational efficiency of any organization, whether you are a tech company or not. So I think that's, that'd be the only other things I'd say. What are your three objectives for this quarter, if you can share them publicly? For this quarter, it is, so they're part of my major OKR. So I have operational stability, and I've got metrics around like what that actually means. So like the amount of downtime that we're allowed to have, the amount of SLAs that we're allowed, you know, um, and then revenue growth is my second one. So that is how the, the, the tech can support the business objectives in, in a revenue growth pattern. So retaining the partnerships that we have, Offering new services and new products and new features that are out there that that is you know has a measurable revenue side to it because we've got to grow Napster and get out of this. I can't believe you're still around. Question, and then the third is having that uh, that that Web three strategy in place. So that is you know what is it that we're going looking ahead and beyond, just like maintaining the ship, putting us on a growth pattern based on existing. Uh, uh, um, our existing strategy, but also like what our new our new piece is. So we are working through the the Web three tech strategy, putting together a white paper for all that, exploring a token launch, those kind of things. Well, dude, this is great. And by the way, yeah. if you are in Nashville, we've got like an eleven hundred square foot studio. So we've got like multiple microphones and like seating and stuff, so you can oh, wow. come and do do a show in person. So that's always possible too. If that'd you're, be great, if you're yeah, Nashville. man, that'd be yeah. that'd be rad, yeah, awesome. Then I could geek out on your tech, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.